uh, get your Bibles open, turn it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and pray with me as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its clarity. Help us to listen, understand, love you and obey you in response to your word this morning. Amen. There are some days that you, you know they're coming, but you look at them with fear in your heart. I think I've mentioned this one before, but it was, it was 1989. It was the year seven half yearly report. And look, the day was coming. The day, that day was going to be a fearful day. I had done nothing but talk and joke around, do anything but work in the year seven art class. I had no idea what comment the teacher would make on my report card. I had no idea except I knew that it wasn't going to be very good. And that day, gee, that day was coming, that day when mum and dad, or particularly dad, would read the report card and I was scared of that day. It was going to arrive in the mail. And so day after day, I was the one checking the letterbox to see if anything had come into the mail. And day after day, nope, it's not here yet. Nope, it's not here yet. I was hoping that it had just got lost in the mail. I thought that'd be really convenient. But then, then the day came. And Dad opened up my report card and he read these words, Art, Year 7. Progress has suffered through inconsistent effort. Peter is easily distracted by others. Mark, 19 out of 100. <laughs> 19%. It's year 7 art, I got 19%. It didn't help that the comment from my history teacher read quite similarly when it said, Peter is a likeable lad. Unfortunately, he's put very little effort into history this year. Many set tasks are unfinished. His book work leaves much to be desired. Oh, all my fears were realised on that day. That day was coming. It was inevitable. It was inescapable. Dad was not impressed. And it was inevitable that I was going to get grounded and I was grounded for a month. There are other days in your life, though, that are coming that, that don't hold so much fear. They're coming, but they come with excitement. Uh, I know this is before some of you were even born, but I, I remember when, when Sydney was awarded the 2000 Olympics. And I remember driving to work in the, in the city of Sydney. And I remember driving, driving in, on James Roos Drive, and it had a big sign that said, 555 days to go. Then you know, 50 days to go. Five days to go. It was saying that there was this day that was coming. It was an inevitable day, an inescapable day, a day filled with excitement, the opening day of the Olympics. Now that excitement of, of a day arriving, or even that fear that I had of a day arriving, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a day in the Old Testament, a day called the Day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord that comes with it, this excitement as, as well as this fear. It's a day that the Apostle Paul will talk about in the passage we're looking at today, but a, a, a day that he's anticipated. Because if you can remember, as we've been working through the, the, uh, the letter to 1 Thessalonians, Paul just recently has been working through a number of, of, of implications of the gospel. He showed how the gospel has the power to transform people. That the gospel is so powerful, it had the, the ability to transform sex and take selfishness out of sex for you. He's talked about how the gospel is so powerful it can transform work and take selfish ambition out of work. He's actually spoken about how the gospel is so powerful that it can transform grief, has the power to take ignorance 
out of death. And we, we saw that last week as, as he spoke about that God will bring those with Jesus Christ who have died in him. The dead will rise first. Those who are alive will then meet them in the sky. Death is not the end. His people will all be reunited with God in heaven forever. There's this great reunion. And of course, as Paul begins to speak like this, the reunion of all God's people alive and dead, it begs the question, hey, Paul, when is this going to occur? When is the reunion going to happen? And this anticipates the discussion about the day of the Lord. He begins to talk about it in chapter 5, verse 1. Look at what it says there in chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes now, Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, the day of the Lord but before we look into what Paul says about the day of the Lord, it's important that we get a feel for that day from the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles there, please get them open. Come with me actually to Amos chapter 5. It's a, it's a chapter in the Old Testament uh, where this day is spoken about. And uh, we're going to pick it up at Amos chapter 5. I'm going to start from verse 18. Here's the prophet Amos speaking about this day. And he says, chapter 5 verse 18, he says... Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Uh, the prophet Amos is noticing that the, obviously it's in that people are longing for the day of the Lord to arrive. And, and why were they longing for it? Well, it was a day when God, well, God had promised Israel that, that he was going to come and God himself was going to visit them. And on this day when he arrives, the day of the Lord, he's going to raise up the little, small, beaten, despised Israel and make her the nation of all nations. And so they look forward to this day. But as they look forward to it, they made a grave mistake. They thought that because this day was coming, then and God had promised it, and they thought, well, well, it's just going to happen no matter what we do, so it doesn't really matter how we live. Because God has promised, a promise is a promise, we can do whatever we want and we will still come out on top eventually. But they are in for a great shock. Because Amos says to them, look at verse 18 again, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered a house and rested on his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I mean, talk about false expectations. Here were the people longing and expecting the day to be one thing, a great day for them. And Amos says, no, 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 woe to you. It's going to be completely different to what you're expecting. You think it's going to be a day of safety and prosperity, but it's going to be, he says, a day of disaster for you. And we, it makes you wonder, how did they get it so wrong? Why is their expectation so different? Well, the, the reason it's so different is because, well, it's because of what God is actually like. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 21. Amos goes on to say, well, God's saying here, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. 
Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. See, here is why the day and the expectations for those days are so different. It's because God is not superficial. I mean, they are, the people are. They're superficial. They had the whole religious play act down pat. They, they had their songs. They were even doing the sacrifices that God had asked them to do. But God says he, he hates it. And why? Because he sees through the superficiality of it. It's all pretense. It's all, it's all a shiny exterior that looks great from the outside. But inside their hearts, I mean, their hearts went in it. Jesus called it like whitewashing a tomb. And these people of Israel were like hypocrites. They were, just, they were just going through the motions. And in their hearts, well, their hearts weren't in it. Their hearts were totally absent. It was just all superficial and for show. And there wasn't any heartfelt love and desire and faithfulness and obedience to God. And God sees their hearts and he sees straight through their actions. And he realizes that they have no affection for him. No heartfelt faithfulness to him. And God is not at all interested in their shiny exterior that just covers up an interior that is as rough as guts. Their relationship with God was hollow, superficial and empty. And it lacked any substance, any weightiness. There was no authenticity to it and God hated it. And so this day that they were looking forward to, this day of the Lord, which they thought would bring them great honour and prestige, a day of vindication. God says, no, woe to you who long for it. It is going to be a day of devastation. Because in that day you will be exposed for the half-hearted religious frauds that they were. Interestingly, as you read on in the book of Amos, and even beyond the book of Amos into the next book of the Old Testament, Obadiah, you also read more about this day, that the day of the Lord, it's not just going to be a, a terrifying day for the religious hypocrite. It's going to be a terrifying day for the secular hypocrite as well. Because as you get into the next book after Amos, Obadiah, Obadiah will speak of the nation of Edom. And Edom really represent all the nations of the earth, nations that have mocked God, who couldn't care less about the God of the Bible, who ignore him and belittle him and are indifferent to him. And Obadiah says, a day of the Lord, oh, it's coming on you too. Malachi adds further to it as well, and he speaks of the dangers that are there for people. He speaks of the day of the Lord that is coming, that it will be a day when God's justice will arrive. And he says it will be a day that will burn like a furnace. And every evildoer, religious or secular, will be stubble. He says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. The furnace language here is a reminder. It's a reminder that God's justice in this day of the Lord will be so great and so comprehensive that no one will escape its scrutiny. Earlier Malachi talked like it as being a refiner's fire that, that burns off every single last bit of impurity. He spoke of it like a launderer's soap, which is so heavy duty that it removes every single minute stain. 
He's saying that when God's justice is come, when the day of the Lord arrives, no sin, no matter how small we think it is, nothing is going to be left unjudged. And for people who refuse to return to God before that day arrives, to come to him and seek forgiveness, Malachi says they'll be stubble in that day. The language of here is of being set on fire. Some people at this point in time think, hey, come on, hey, this is God being inappropriate. This is simple scaremongering. But I want you to feel that this is not the case. What we see in the Old Testament as it talks about the day of the Lord that's coming, it's not inappropriate scare tactics. What we see here is God telling us the truth about what happens when you walk away from him. This is God telling us, telling us the truth in love. It, it's a bit like the cigarette packets that you see around today with those really awful pictures on them. I mean, those pictures, you do realize they are telling you the truth in love. It's not unkind and it's not even inappropriate that they put those images on the packets. For those images are there to warn you that this is what can happen if you smoke. They're saying this can, this can easily happen to you this is the day that's coming and here in the old testament god openly speaks about the day of the lord and it is god being kind to you it is god warning you it is god saying this is what will happen to you if you do not return to me and sure it's not a pretty picture but it is the truth in love and look it's not just there in the old testament jesus christ himself openly regularly talks about the, the reality of hell that it is a place where the fire never goes out. A place of utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing in teeth. And sure, they are not nice pictures. Just like the picture on the cigarette packet is, is not nice. But they are the truth in love. It's God telling us the day is coming. It's God telling us don't underestimate the greatness of my judgment. No one will escape my scrutiny. And so the Apostle Paul picks up that day here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day that has been promised. And he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul makes a couple of comments about that day. Firstly, he says that day is coming and when it arrives, it's going to be unexpected. That, that's what he's getting at when he says it'll come like a thief in the night. I don't know if you've ever been stolen from in your life. I've been stolen from just a couple of times. Not often, but it has happened a couple of times. And one thing I can tell you about being stolen from is that it always happens when you least expect it. I can tell you I've never got a card in the letterbox from the thief that's saying, I'm coming tonight. Get ready. I've never got I've never got an SMS in advance telling me, "Hey, today's the day." Now, the very nature of thieving is that thieves come when you least expect them. And Paul says, "That is what you need to know about this day. You don't need to know the times and the dates. In fact, no one knows the times and the dates." Even Jesus said he did not know when he spoke about it in Mark 13. 
Even in Acts chapter 1, he says, that, he says to his disciples that it's not for them to know the times and the dates set by the Father, by his own authority. Now, I do know that some people get worked up about precise timing, but Jesus warns us very clearly away from that. All you need to know about the timing is that it will come when you least expect it. And if you are going to be ready for something that's going to come and arrive when you least expect it to arrive, well, the only way to be ready for something like that is to be ready all the time. Now, the second comment that the Apostle Paul makes about this day is that when, it, when, when that day arrives, it will arrive with unavoidable consequences. It'll be, there'll be inescapable, unavoidable consequences. That is what the imagery there of the pregnant woman in labor is all about. You see, once a woman is pregnant, everybody knows the day is coming. There's no avoiding it. You won't be able to escape the day. Labor pains will come upon that woman unavoidably, inescapably. So too it is with the day of the Lord. It's unavoidable and inescapable. Now, the third thing that Paul points out about this day is that, yes, it will come when you least expect it. And yes, it will come with inescapable and unavoidable consequences. And because of that, you'll need to have your wits about you. Because the third thing he wants to say is there'll be plenty of people who will scoff about this day. Who will, who will think it's never going to happen. It's like that because there, there is a combination going on here. There's a combination of certainty with uncertainty. There's a certainty that the day is coming, but an uncertainty about when that day will arrive. And that combination creates among many people a false sense of security. And you see it so, so readily in the world around us. See, see, friends of yours, next door neighbours, work colleagues, how do they respond if you'd ever talk to them about the news of, hey, the day's coming? Often nowadays they respond with, a, with some hostility, with how dare you bring such a negative message? Can't you be more positive? And if it's not hostility like that, often it's more scoffing. Oh, yeah, 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 you Christians, you've been going on about this day of the Lord for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. It's never going to happen. Whatever. It just breeds this false sense of security. And because around the world, because in the world around us there is this false sense of security, you're going to have to have your wits about you. If, if you're going to be ready for something that's going to arrive when you least expect it, you're going to have to have your wits about you to be ready all the time. Particularly when the world around you wants you to join in with their false sense of security. And to help us keep our wits about us, look at what Paul says in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You see, it's here that, that Paul tells us the difference that the gospel makes. The gospel has the power to take selfishness out of sex for you. The gospel has the power to take selfish ambition out of work. The gospel has the power to take ignorance out of death. The gospel even has the power to take surprise out of a day of the Lord. 
Now, when he says here that the day of the Lord should not surprise you like a thief, I don't think for a moment that means that when, when the day of the Lord turns up that there'll be no surprise for any Christians at all, that there'll be no one going around. Sorry, that all the Christians will be going, yeah, I told you it happened this week. Now, of course, I think there'll be a sense in which it will be a surprise for all people. But in another sense, the most important sense, that day will not be for us a surprise or unexpected. For the Apostle Paul says, you are already sons and daughters of the light. In other words, as far as you're concerned, that day has already dawned. It's, it's already started. And that should cause us to ask that question, in what sense has the day already started? Well, in that day, it will be a day when the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ will be displayed so openly to the whole world that everybody will know that it's true. Whether they like it or not, whether they will bow the knee to Jesus willingly or unwilling, they will all know and every knee will bow because everybody will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul is saying here, you already know that. You're not in the dark. The light of that day has dawned for you because you know and, and or have already treating Jesus as Lord. And his application to them is that if that day has already dawned for you and you're already living in the light, then for goodness sake, he says, stay awake, stay alert. Don't go back to sleep. Keep your wits about you. See what he says there in verse six. He says, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. It, it really is a, a fairly stark image here, isn't it? While the light has dawned already for Christian people, Paul says the rest of humanity is still in the darkness, still, still asleep, he says, in the night. And, and if, he's, if, if they're not asleep, they're out getting drunk is, his, is the image here. In what sense are, are the people of the world asleep? Or in the other image, in what sense are they drunk? It's simply that they have not woken up to the fact that Jesus Christ has died for them, that he's risen from the grave, that he's ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand, that he has been established as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, established as the judge of the living and the dead, and that he is he is coming again. They haven't woken up to that reality. It's the deepest reality that affects the whole universe. And if you haven't woken up to that reality, then you really are in a deep, deep sleep. You really are oblivious to ultimate reality. Or, or to use Paul's second image here, you, you are thoroughly sloshed. You're not seeing things properly. You are not in your right mind. Now, the reason Paul speaks like this is to say to the Thessalonians and to say to people who are Christian today that if the light has dawned for us, then let's not go to sleeping and let's not doze off. Let's be alert. Let's be self-controlled. I mean, what does he mean by that, to, to, be, to be awake and alert and self-controlled? Well, if you believe the image on the cigarette packet and the light it shines on your health, then for you to be alert and self-controlled would be to give the cigarettes up, wouldn't it? Or it would be to not even start smoking in the first place. 
Now, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is the King of Kings and that he is he has died to save you and forgiven you and will return to judge. If that is the picture of a light that's dawned, then, then what would the self-controlled life look like? The sober life? Look at verse 8. He says, since, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. I love the imagery there of a breastplate and salvation as a helmet because they're kind of soldier imagery, aren't they? You don't put on a helmet to go to sleep. You put it on to go to war, to be alert, to be self-controlled. And what does the self-controlled life look like? Well, he says faith, love and hope. Firstly, it looks like faith. The word faith simply means trust. See, when you hear the gospel news, it can transform your trust. Because you begin to understand that you can have complete confidence in God, that you really, really can completely trust him. Because you begin to recognize that, that Jesus died for me and has completely forgiven me. And I get a sense of God's, the depth of his care for me, that he's even coming back to get me. That death is not the end, that I'll spend eternity with him. And when you grasp this about, about the God of the gospel, then you... You can see clearly in that light that God can be completely trusted, wholeheartedly trusted, and that the self-controlled life is living, trusting him. That yes, I don't have to be selfish in my sexual behavior. I don't have to be full of self-centered ambition at work. I don't have to grieve like those who grieve with, life, with no hope. Whatever issue you come up with, I don't have to gossip to be cool. I don't have to be stingy with my money I can generously share. You see, if you genuinely trust God, it'll affect everything in life from your time to your ambition to your money because you know that God can be trusted completely. And if you trust him completely, then gee, your life will look so different to those who are asleep. That, that's faith. The second way of living with self-control and having your wits about you is all about love. See, when you know the love of God, when the light of God's love has dawned in your life, that God you know loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to rescue you, and that he has loved you so much that, that he's coming back to receive you and have you back with him forever. When he has loved you so much that, that Jesus bore the wrath of God for you so that on the day of the Lord you will not have to bear the wrath of God for yourself. When you know that depth of the love of God, well, then that, that releases you. And it just frees you up to love other people. I don't have to spend my life proving who I am and asserting myself. I can love other people and not have to worry about myself so much because God has loved me. Faith, love, and thirdly, hope. The self-controlled, sober life is full of hope. It's, it's an alert life. The alertness of hope. It's living with an eager expectation of that day of the Lord to arrive. It's not for us like it was in Amos. Woe to you who are longing for that day because of your, you're a religious or a secular hypocrite. No, no, no. You look forward to that day when Christ will return because in your heart you set him apart as Lord and so you trust him and you love him and you long for that day. You, you, your hope is full of the day of that arriving and the hope of that day lifts your eyes is, and it makes a difference. And the difference it makes is that, 
That is, you live in this hope. You don't live an aimless life just bobbling along. Many of your work colleagues are just bobbling along in this endless circle of meaningless where you go to work and it's, it's the conversation of, oh, what did you do this weekend? And then it moves to, so what are you doing next weekend? And the conversation just goes round and round the weekends and around and round and merry-go-round we go. And, and that's the level of conversation because that's the level of life. It's going nowhere. It's been nowhere. And one day, unsurprisingly, it will end nowhere. There it, there it's sleep. That's not for us who live in the hope of that day. And as we come to a close, I'm bound to press this question on myself just as much as I'm bound to press the question on you. And it's the obvious question of are you awake? Are you living in the light of this day, alert and sober? Some of us here, no doubt, are Christians who are dozing a little. That is to say, there are areas of your life where you're not actually living, trusting God, loving Him, or living alert, full of hope for that day. Some of us here actually this morning may well still be sound asleep. It may be that for you, the talk of Jesus Christ's death and His resurrection and His coming again, that, that really for you is just, you know, just words, just vague ideas, that they're not the reality that's driving the way in which you live. That's because you're in the darkness. In the imagery of this passage, you are asleep or sloshed, depending on which image you choose to take. And what is being said in this passage is, wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to hear God's call and to turn from that darkness and come into the light. Now, others of us here are awake and are alert, like the Thessalonians were. And this passage is saying to us, stay awake. Be more alert, more and more. And don't just make sure that you're ready in love and in hope, help others to get ready. Don't doze off because it's a disaster for the world around you. They need help to wake up. And the temptation to doze off is real. That combination of it's certainly coming, but we're uncertain about when it will arrive. That combination of the day of the Lord being certain, uncertain, it brings in us who are Christian a temptation to be dozers as well. Please don't doze off. My wife Sarah still remembers her first lecture at university. She was a first year student. She'd just popped out of high school. She'd done okay with the HSC. Uh, she had every reason to be confident that she would go okay at university. But Colin Sutherland, Mass 1A lecturer, her very first uh, university lecture that year, his opening words in the lecture theatre were, he said, he said, take a good look at the person on one side of you. And he said, and turn and take a good look at the person on the other side of you. One of the three of you will fail and will not be here in second semester. He says, if everything goes as per normal in this course, then one out of three of you will fail. So if you've turned up to this course thinking that it's going to be easy, wake up. I have no problems failing you if I need you. And I tell you what, everyone in that room took notice. Sarah, Sarah took notice because there was a day coming. 
a day when a third of the people in the lecture theatre would no longer be there, and it would have been foolish to be dozing off or thinking that he was joking. It would be a grave mistake this morning if you didn't take this news from God seriously. Because God is not telling us about this day to play a game with us. He is deadly serious. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And passages like this remind us that many are asleep. In fact, the majority of people are asleep. Jesus will say elsewhere that broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Now he tells us about this day so that his true people will be ready. We'll always be prepared. You know, when an Olympic athlete gets ready for the day in which they will compete, their whole lives are saturated with preparations for that day. It affects what they eat, it affects what time they go to bed, what time they get up, where they live, how they spend their money, it affects their social life, the company they keep. There is not one bit of their life that is not affected by preparations for that day at the Olympic Games. For them, it's not just a, it's not a game. Now look, that day of competition at the Olympics has got nothing at all to compare with the day of the Lord. And our lives must be saturated by preparations for that day. It's not a day that we can play around with. Some people play around with this day, some Christians who are dozing off. They get keen every now and then for the things of the Lord, but their, their life lacks the proper rigour and proper preparation. It doesn't start to affect the company you keep, what you watch on TV, how you spend your money, what your goals and ambitions in life are, what you talk about, what you think about, where you go. Every part of your life must be saturated by preparation for this day. Friends, realise this day is at the forefront of God's plans for eternity. Because on that day, there will be one Lord and one King, and his name will be the only name. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being clear about that day. Help us to be awake and alert and self-controlled so that through faith in Christ alone we can be ready and we can be alert enough to help others get ready too. Amen.